You're listening to the Fret Files, the guitar repair podcast with Eric Daw. related to guitar repair, guitar technology, guitar parts, guitar tools, guitar this, guitar that, you know, just uh, generally all things guitar. My name's Eric Daw. I've been repairing guitars for about as long as I can remember. I was just always Mr. Fix-It, not only with guitars, but I don't know, I just, I love getting into how things work and taking things apart and figuring out what makes something tick, so that wasn't so good for some radios and lawnmowers I encountered uh, <laughs> in my youth, but it worked out real good for guitars. Uh, I love uh, how guitars work, and uh, I love helping people figure out their guitars and their guitar repair problems. So that's what this podcast is about. This is episode number two, February 2014. It's going to be a monthly podcast, and uh, I had really good response from the first episode. Uh Thanks if you listened. Thank you very much. I I appreciate everybody that participated and downloaded the show and listened. And uh, I had a few questions uh, about the first episode. Somebody was asking me what the music is. Well, I probably should have mentioned this, but all that music was uh, bands that I've been in. Most of it was the Satellite 4. It's uh, a band that's now defunct, but that's my Seattle home base band that I actually um, bowed out of last year due to uh, having a baby. Well, not necessarily. I was just a little bit a little bit worn out. I've been gigging and playing music, and I've been in bands for a long, long time, and uh, uh, you just need a break sometimes. So that's where this podcast comes in. I'm doing something different now, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. I've always been a, uh, a talk radio junkie, and I don't know. I thought I'd try my hand at doing something, and what better than to do a show about something you know? And, well, I know guitars. I don't know everything about guitars, and if I don't know something, hey, I'll tell you. I'll be the first to admit. And if I don't know uh, a question or can't answer something, I'll find out for you. So I would love it if you would participate in this podcast. There's a couple different ways to do that. One is you can send me an email. Go to ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com, and you can click the contact link. You can send me a question there for the podcast. If I like your question, I'll use it. I'll answer it on the air or on the, well, it's not on the air, on the recording, whatever, on the podcast. So send me your guitar-related tech questions and repair questions. And uh, you can also call any time of day or night um, a special phone number I set up. Uh, where you can, it's just a 24-hour answering machine. Nobody's going to answer it. You just call, leave a message. It is 757-77-GUITAR. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Well, it's almost 757-77-GUITAR. You don't dial the very last (laughs) digit so that you leave the R off. So it's actually 757-77-GUITAR. Well, anyway, that's the closest I could come to a cool phone number, but in digits, it's 757-774-8482, and I think I got that right. I just did it off the top of my head, but you'll figure it out. You can go to the, uh, uh, the, the phone number will be in the show notes and on my website, so easy to do. Participate in the podcast, and I will answer your questions. Um... I listened back to the first show, and I went over all the 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 uh, emails and messages I got about the show, and I was thinking about all the questions I can answer and all the things I can talk about, and I realized, you know, 
I think it's going to be really difficult for me not to come across as a uh, a guitar snob. Because, <laughs> uh, hey, let's face it, I kind of am, okay? I will admit it, I am a guitar snob. It's hard not for me to be a guitar snob. I work in a really high-end shop in Seattle where I pretty routinely work on guitars worth way more than I am. Uh, I, you know, I mean, gosh, I'm humble about it. I, uh, uh, I really, really love what I do, and I just feel absolutely humbled to, uh, to be able to do what I love. I don't think very many people get to do that. I get to do that. It's pretty awesome, and I'm thankful for it every day, but, um, it's hard for me not, it's going to be hard for me maybe not to come across as a guitar snob, so, uh, let's aim, let's aim for likable guitar snob. How about that? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help you. And, uh, I also thought that, um, my other thought was that I, I really, you know, when I, when I dreamed this podcast up, I really thought that it would probably be listened to mostly by other people in the industry, um, other guitar repair people, other, um, techs, other builders. And, uh, most of the feedback I got, um, was from just average, you know, players, Players that aren't really necessarily coming from a repair angle, but they want to learn more about guitar repair and they find it interesting. And uh, so I guess maybe that's just, you know, I'm going to go with the flow. I mean, whatever direction the show takes is what direction the show takes. And uh, I think that it's, um, I think it will be equally enjoyable for um, repair people and builders and players alike. So all guitar people and, you know, who doesn't like guitars? Maybe you just listen to guitars. <laughs> Maybe you don't even play. I don't know. You, you might find uh, this podcast interesting. So, I don't know. Anyway, I admit that I'm an opinionated guy when it comes to guitars, and it's it's hard not to be. I mean, if you want to talk about uh, Ovation guitars or Bigsby's, I mean, you might get your feelings hurt if you, if you really like those things, or Floyd Rose uh, tremolo systems. I'm pretty opinionated on some of these things. So, uh, you know, we could we could talk about that. We could talk about Floyd Roses versus Bigsby's, you know. What's better? Uh, staying out of tune old school or, or giving yourself a headache new school? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, at the end of the day, they're just guitars. I, I tell people that all the time, you know. If you're getting worked up over your guitar, just just relax. Just play it. They're just guitars, so... The more expensive a guitar is, uh, sometimes the the more headache they'll give you because you obsess about it. But, you know, I found actually that my favorite guitars are, are pretty cheap. I like cheap vintage guitars. Um, the good old American-made cheap vintage guitars like Harmonies and Supros and Dan Electros and Silver Tones, K. I mean, that's really my stuff that I like. Because A, I can afford it, and B, it's pretty good quality. I mean, um, sometimes you have to uh, fix them up a little bit. I mean, I've got an old, uh, I've got a Harmony um, Sovereign acoustic that I just love. And, uh, you know, you, if you know what I'm talking about, you know those are awesome guitars. But they almost always need a neck reset. So, you know, you kind of have to invest either your own time or your own money into having somebody else do the work. I just, I reset the neck myself on it and um, turned out awesome. I love that guitar. Those are killer guitars. American made. Uh, mine's from the 60s and uh, I'm into it for way less than a grand. So that's the way to go for me. But, uh, you know, if I had the money, I'd be into expensive guitars. <laughs> Believe me. I do love them. So uh, I like the USA-made quality stuff. Back in the golden age of guitars, 50s, 60s, that's the good stuff. Um, in my opinion, most of the major guitar manufacturers quit making guitars years ago. They uh, they just make um, they just basically make replicas now. I mean, they're not even they're not even the same companies. They make guitars now that still have their name, but they're totally totally different animals. So. Uh, but I don't want to get into bad mouthing the the big boys. Uh, I'll just stick with my little my little humble podcast here. So anyway, uh, I want to do some guitar news. Let's do guitar news. Guitar news. 
Joining me now from a phone booth in the high desert is our guitar news correspondent, Red. Hi, Red. Hey, how's it going? Going awesome. Thank you for joining me on the Fret Files here, and uh, I'm excited about having this new segment where you are going to do guitar news for us. That is right, and I have a pack of news for all the listeners tonight. Great. Well, let's dig right in, and uh, why don't you tell us what you've got for us? Well, a big story lately is Gibson giving the finger to the feds with uh, production of the government series two Les Paul. Have you heard this story? Okay, so this is the um, the guitar made from the tone woods that uh, that were confiscated by the government a few years ago. That's right. That's right. The raids of Gibson from 2009 and 2011, uh, where they were suspected of violating the Lacey Act, um, well, the case has now been settled. Gibson has paid their due and settled the case with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, of all departments, and uh, all the hard woods have now been returned. So they got the wood back, and they're making a special edition Les Paul out of it. That's cool. Indeed. It even has um, a government bland tan finish, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, each one comes with a hot-stamped pit guard with a bald eagle on it to mark the occasion. They even come with a certificate of authenticity from the CEO of Gibson. Oh, wow. I remember when this happened, and it it kind of lit up um, Facebook and uh, guitar circles. People, and especially anti-government types, you know, were freaking out about um, infringement upon liberties. And I mean, maybe they should, uh, maybe they should, maybe they should do a Ron Paul model instead of a Les Paul model. (laughs) I might actually buy one of those. I mean, I I lean that way anyway. Yeah. Well, it looks like they've made. Uh, the government series two and you know all our favorite Gibson you know guitar styles the flying V the Explorer the SG and the Les Paul oh so it's and not just a Les Paul I thought it was that's cool what do they what do they sell for ah uh, they're going for nine ninety nine as I've seen uh, that's the lowest they list at one thousand ninety nine but uh, they're selling out left and right. That's actually pretty cheap for a brand new um, Gibson. That's cool. Yeah, it's not a bad deal. And you can, you know, show your anti-love for the government uh, when you play one up on stage. Yeah. and You know, I read about it when it happened. I remember they, um, it wasn't that they had uh, any wood that was contraband. It was actually the size of it. It was like, it was cut a little bit um, too big for what, um, the parameters were supposed to be according to the law and f- for whatever reason um, it's supposed to be pre-cut in the country that they get it from and they were having it sent in in larger blanks and cutting it themselves and that was actually what the violation was but I guess it's all water under the bridge now and they got the wood back and now they're making special guitars out of it and good for them that's cool yeah good for them to uh, cash in on something that just was really unfortunate thing to happen for a great U.S. company like Gibson. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, what else you got? Well, there's a new wave of tuners hitting the market. And for the old school guitar players out there, I don't know how people are going to feel about this, but uh, there's a new device in particular called the Tronical Tune. Hmm. And uh, it's a little robot you can put on the back of your headstock of your guitar comes pre-sized for just about any headstock you got and it actually will if you hit the button on the back you'll watch your tuning pegs just turn on their own to your preset tuning alternate tuning drop d standard tunings whatever um and I was just, you know, wanted to run this by you and see what you and the uh, listeners would think about something like that. Well, I'm old school. I am uh, i don't think I'm going to buy anything like that anytime soon. And I've seen, uh, I, I know Gibson has a version of, of that, or maybe it's maybe it's the version that you're talking about uh, with their robot Les Paul. The guitar tunes itself actually 
um, mechanically the tuners turn by themselves and it tunes itself and uh, I don't know how how long before that breaks down that's what I'm wondering well that's a good question you know and it's also going to be putting a lot of roadies out of a job well and it's also um you know part of paying your dues and learning how to play guitar is mastering the art of tuning your guitar and so um I hate to see anybody get this and use that as a crutch uh, God forbid you'd have to use somebody else's guitar for a show if yours broke and you don't know how to tune the darn thing. Well, that did come to my mind as well. I mean, two ninety nine for a box like this, and yeah, you can look cool for a little while, but what's going to happen when the moment actually comes and you got to bust out some chops of your own? <laughs> how about Tuning a, a guitar yeah. is, a, is a touchy thing, and... and I've always thought it should be something done by hand. You can't just throw money and expect to get the same amount of skill that uh, seasoned guitar players are going to have. That's right. And you are uh, a guitar tech, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I've done a lot of guitar teching and a lot of backstages. Yeah, so (laughs) we we don't want robots putting you out of work or me. How about a guitar that plays itself? Maybe that's next. Just a guitar that you just... You just strap it on and it just plays uh, Stairway to Heaven. How about that? I think that's what uh, that game, Guitar Oh, yeah. You're right. Oh, yeah. We have it. About? Guitar Hero. Yeah, you're right. We already have it. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so they're taking the cool out of the whole thing, in my opinion. Yes, they are. Learn to tune your guitar, yes. Then you're cool. And learn how to play it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, what else you got? Well, we got some news for some old school bands coming up, uh, which is, you know, just a breath of fresh air to me. Keep your ears peeled for new albums coming from Anthrax and Motley Crue in the next year or two, and maybe a new album from Metallica sometime in this decade. Oh, super retro. Yeah, yeah, bringing back the Toxic Waltz. And, uh... BLS, you know, Black Label Society, they haven't had a new album come out since the song remains not the same, but if you or any of your listeners want to see some real guitar work from one of the last true, you know, real shredders out there, you can go see Black Label. They're starting a tour this year, 2014, starting in Seattle on April 16th, going throughout the summer. I have to admit, I've never heard of this. Black Label Society? Oh, get out there and yeah. get some well, of this music. You will be you will be awash in heavy riffs. Uh, <laughs> I the whole the whole Hesher movement passed me by. I mean I was uh uh I was uh I was certainly around in the eighties, but uh you know, I never I never tuned in to to uh, Metallica and the like, but I respect them. I know that they're great bands. It's just never was my cup of tea. But um, yeah, for those of you with long hair, <laughs> go see BLS. Hey, it's a must for anybody who uh, wants to think that they can play guitar at all these days. You gotta you gotta get a look at what a professional does up on stage. As Zach Wild will really blow your mind. He's uh, amazing. Yeah, I know that he's a a monster guitar player for sure. Awesome. Mm -hmm. He is. We'll show you how to rock that Les Paul. (laughs) That's in Seattle. I don't think that they make um, earplugs big enough for me to go, so I'll probably stay at home. But (laughs) What else you got, Red? Well, we have just a few little bits and pieces here. Uh, I want everybody to remember that this month in 1956, Buddy Holly signed his first recording contract with Decca Records. There you go. And uh, everybody clink your drinks to Tony Iommi, one Uh. of the guys who laid down the heaviest riffs of all time of Black Sabbath. He is celebrating his 65th birthday this year on February 19th. And Adrian Smith of Iron Maiden turns 56 on February 27th, so uh, party wow. hard on those dates, and awesome. this is Red with your guitar news on the Fret Files. Hope you keep them in tune, and uh, I'll see you next month. Thank you, Red, for joining us. We'll take a brief break and be right back with more, so don't go away. 
is sponsored by Emerald City Guitars. Emerald City Guitars is the Northwest's premier vintage guitar store. In fact, it's uh, one of the world's most well-known guitar stores. We specialize in vintage gear. I say we because, hey, I work there. I'm the repair specialist. I've been there for uh, 13 years now, and uh, I do all the all the customer uh, repairs and all of the... Um, a lot of the restorations that happen on a lot of the gear that's that's uh, for sale there. You should check out Emerald City Guitars' website if you haven't. EmeraldCityGuitars.com. You will be astounded at the inventory. It is, it's really amazing, and I'm I'm blessed to work there. It's an awesome store. Uh, you should check it out. So, Emerald City Guitars, check it out. you listening i would appreciate it even more if you would like to participate and like i said before you can do that by leaving me a message at ericdaw.com just click the contact link send me your guitar related question or you can call and leave a message at 757-774-8482 let's uh yeah okay let's get right into it let's answer some uh, questions Dear Fred Files Podcast, I love the show. Smiley face. Well, thank you. My question is, I recently came into possession of a few vintage guitars of varying value. How about that for alliteration? That's my aside, by the way. A few vintage guitars of varying value. Although I have no interest in liquidating them, if it were my goal, would you recommend selling them sooner or later, given the current state of the vintage guitar market? I will hang up now and listen to your answer, he says in his email. Oh, you clever man. Uh, Your biggest fan... Oh, yeah, and he uses a fake name here. I know who you are, Thomas. This is a letter from Thomas in Boise, uh, who happens to be an old friend of mine. Thanks for the compliment about the podcast. I'm also a big fan of Thomas. He's a brilliant musician, and I... uh, Actually, he's a guy that I'd like to have on the show at some point, just because he's a genius, I mean, musically. Um, Anyhow, uh, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I work, as you may know, in a vintage guitar shop, and I have for a long time, and uh, it has gone up and down, just like everything else, um, just like any market, just like any uh, antique market, and and uh, vintage guitars are just another uh, corner of the antique market. Um, and there was a big crash in 2008, and prices are, are finally back up. But when the real estate market crashed, just uh, just like a lot of things, the guitar market crashed with it in 2008. And it's funny how everything is kind of tied in together like that. But when money gets tight, things like antiques and, you know, vintage collectible guitars uh, are definitely in that category, become a lower priority. So you get people not spending as much money on them, which drives the price down. So, uh, and I don't have a crystal ball. I really, I really can't say what the market's going to do in the future. So it's actually, it's kind of a hard question to answer in that regard, but if we back up and take a look at kind of the big picture, the bigger picture here, um, there's, I talk to a lot of people of, about vintage guitars and um, the uninitiated are always surprised at how much money uh, some vintage guitars can fetch. I mean, there are, uh, we've we've sold guitars out of this shop here that are nearly a quarter million dollars, and, and people always say, well, did somebody famous own it or something? Is that Eric Clapton's guitar? Well, um, there are guitars that, you know, nobody famous owned them. It's just that they're super rare and super valuable and uh, very desirable and worth a lot of money. So um, just like any other antique market, there's really, there's a formula for what makes 
something valuable. Um, and it's the same thing that applies to vintage uh, records or furniture or um, anything, any kind of antique. There are uh, there's a set of parameters that can tell you uh, what makes it valuable. And it's the same for guitars as it is for anything else. And it's three things, basically. It's condition, rarity, and demand. And uh, those three factors, if, if an item has those three factors, then it's going to be worth a lot of money. So um, I don't know what kind of guitars you're talking about here, Thomas, but, um, you know, looking at the big picture here, uh, I'm assuming that I'm assuming that you, that you probably know what those guitars are kind of worth, um, but let's pretend you don't, and maybe you don't. Maybe maybe you don't have a very good idea. So there's a great uh, resource for this. Um, if you went to the bookstore or go online, go to Amazon and uh, buy a book called the um, it's called the Official Vintage Guitar Magazine Price Guide. And the 2014 version is out. Uh, you can get that online. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at most bookstores, most big bookstores. And that's a really great reference for kind of to give you an, a ballpark estimate of what your guitar is worth. Now, you have to take those prices with a grain of salt because um, of the condition of your instrument, the condition of your guitar, and also um, the prices that are in this price guide are, are retail prices. It's a price that a dealer could get in a big market, you know, for, uh, for that particular guitar. So, uh, personal sales like, uh, like Craigslist or eBay, um, from one individual to another are, are never going to fetch the same money that, uh, what a dealer can command. But, um, that's a little bit inside baseball, but here we go. So, uh, condition, rarity, demand, those are the three things to keep in mind. If you have a vintage guitar collection. If you have a vintage guitar and you're wondering what it's worth, um, those are the three factors that affect it. Now, and <laughs> this is uh, getting pretty in-depth for such a simple question, Thomas. Uh, the question was, should he sell his guitar collection now or should he wait, depending on what the market is doing? And I really can't answer that. You know, I I really couldn't say with any certainty that the market's going to keep going up for vintage guitars. In fact, there's been a lot of speculation uh, by people that um, the baby boomers are what has caused vintage guitar prices to skyrocket over the last several decades anyway. And as the baby boomers disappear, the speculation is that the um, vintage guitar market could collapse now, I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't believe that that's true. I think that there are plenty of younger collectors and players that are going to continue um, the market to, to keep going as it has been going. Um, but that's one theory. So, uh, And those people could be right. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. So I would answer your question like this. And this is kind of outside the realm of my expertise. But um, just as a friend to a friend... This is the advice that I would give you um, if you just called me up on the phone and asked me this. I would look at it like this. There's something you can do called a, a sunk cost analysis. And this goes more into financial advice than guitar advice. But um, I would look at it like this. Let's imagine, Thomas, that your guitar collection is worth $10,000. If you sold it today, you could get $10,000 for it. Imagine now that you have that $10,000 in your hand and you don't have those guitars. Would you take that $10,000 and buy those guitars? And if you would, then I would say keep the guitars. If you had the money and wouldn't spend it on those guitars, then I would say sell them. And that's just one way to look at any financial decision, really, and that's kind of how I look at a lot of things. If I'm, you know, talking about buying guitars or, or cars or a house or anything, uh, that's what is called a sunk cost analysis, and that's how I'd look at it. Um, so do what you will, but whatever you do, enjoy those guitars while you have them. 
Thanks for the question, Thomas. I got a few questions about tuning, and I'm just going to roll them into one general question, and we'll, we'll just call this tuning stability tips. I got a lot of questions about, eh, my guitar won't stay in tune, or how do I keep my Telecaster in tune? How do I keep my Les Paul in tune? There are just some general tuning tips that I can share with you, and uh, it's it's hard to get too specific because there's a lot of variables. Guitars vary from one to the other and from one model to another. So the first thing I would tell you is this. Use fresh strings. If you're having tuning problems, change your strings. I see time and time again people using old, crusty, rusty, garbage strings that um, they're never going to stay in tune. Once strings start to age, they start to corrode, they get grime in the in between the... Um, uh, the winds, you know, on the on the wound strings. And uh, th- those strings will never stay in tune again once they start to age. So make sure you use fresh strings. And while you're at it, um, use an everyday brand. Use a cheap, everyday, normal brand of string. If you're having tuning problems, don't use the handmade, boutique, expensive, you know, round core uh, strings. Those strings have excellent tone, but they are fraught with tuning problems. I've seen it time and time again. They have intonation problems. The round core strings, the windings start to come unwound from the round core, and uh, you'll end up with intonation problems that you, you, you can't solve unless you change the string. So use an everyday hex core like a Diodario or Ernie Ball, just a normal cheap string, and uh, uh, if you're having tuning problems and you're using fancy, weird, round core, expensive, uh, boutique, handmade strings, um, stick with the basics just until you get your tuning problems sussed out at least because it might be your strings. So you also want to have your guitar professionally set up. Now, maybe you do your own setups and you're confident in your in your ability to, to get it dialed in, but... If you've set your own guitar up and you're still having tuning issues, take it to a pro. I can't tell you how many guitars I've set up. Uh, I don't how many thousands of guitars I've set up. I promise you that if you're if you're not a a professional, if you don't do this for a living, I promise you I can set up your guitar better than you can. And I'm not (laughs) that sounds arrogant, but um, listen, I do this all day long. Take it to a competent pro. If you're having tuning problems. Uh, if you're having tuning problems, take it to a competent pro. Have them set up your guitar. There's a lot of things that are a really a, a delicate balance that are very nuanced adjustments. Uh, you want to take it to a competent pro and have them set it up. So um, the other thing that you can do is tin the ball end of your guitar strings. So uh, with a soldering iron, you can just use a little bit of solder and tin those uh uh, wraps around the ball end. You can take and tin those with solder, and so that um, so you know that the guitar string is not coming unwound, unwrapped down there by the ball end. And on the other side of the string, you want to make sure that you're putting your string around the tuner properly. There are a few different ways to put a string around a tuner, and. Just winding the entire string around the tuner is definitely not one of them. I see a lot of people will bring me their guitar and they say, I have tuning problems, and I look at the way they've put their strings on and I think to myself, yeah, I bet you do. you got to put your strings on right. It's absolutely key. You have to put your strings on the tuner right. And there's a couple of ways to do it. Um, it's very difficult for me to explain it uh, through audio. So... Look it up online. You, you, you'll you find it online. Easy to do. Make sure you're putting your strings on right. Make sure you're using plain hex core strings. Uh, get your guitar set up properly. What else? Um, put a little bit of graphite in each nut slot. Every guitar that comes across my bench, I put graphite in the nut slots, and that is absolutely imperative. Not only will it keep your guitar in tune, or help you keep your guitar in tune, but it will eliminate string breakage as well, or it'll help eliminate string breakage. 
your string needs to be able to move freely through the nut slots. And uh, getting it properly set up will help do that because you need to make sure those slots are cut properly. If your nut is cut for uh, 9 through 42 strings and you're trying to use 10 through 52 strings, well, then we found your problem. Um, so you got to make sure that those slots are cut properly. That's part of the professional setup. But you've got to use some graphite in each nut slot. So each string is going to sit on just a little bit of graphite in the nut. And a, an easy way to do that is with just a nice sharp pencil. Um, graphite pencil lead, take that, uh, take that nice sharp pencil and just put some graphite shavings underneath each string there so that each string is resting on some graphite, and um, that's the way to do it. That's, that'll really go a long way. It's like putting oil in a car. It just keeps that point of friction lubricated. That string has got to be able to move freely across the nut. And uh, you can also do the same thing down at the bridge end on some guitars. Can't do that really on an acoustic guitar, but if you've got a, if you've got a, a Les Paul or something like that, you can put some graphite in those saddles down at the bridge as well. But, but uh, the nut is really the uh, the important one. So, I uh, hope I didn't leave anything out there. If you're a tech, if you're a repair guy, if you're a, a guitar wizard and you have tuning tips and you feel like I've left something out, send me a message. I'll plug your shop. I will um, share your tuning tips with the audience here, and uh, we'll all learn a little something. So, tuning tips. There you go. Let's see. Next question here comes from Mitch. Mitch says, Hey, the first show was awesome. Thank you, Mitch. Here's a question. How do you feel about using Instaset on CA glue, that's that's super glue, when gluing in new frets? I've had someone tell me that it's better to let the glue cure to let the glue cure by itself. Someone else told me to just spray it so the glue cures before the frets can pop up. Well, I don't use the um the quick set spray. Uh there's an there's a spray you can get. Um if you don't know what Mitch is talking about here. There's a spray that you spray on super glue makes it set faster. It's like it makes it set instantly. It's called an accelerator. Cyanoacrylate accelerator. Cy- Cyanoacrylate is just super glue, just a fancy name for super glue. Um, and I do I do use super glue when I do refrets. A lot of people don't. Um, I feel like it really um, it really helps the bond between the fret and the neck, and that really increases. Um, sustain and helps your tone if the fret has any kind of movement like a loose tooth at all then then it will absorb vibrations of the string rather than transfer them to your guitar or or you know it it just it doesn't allow this the string to to vibrate to its full potential so um yeah i do use super glue when i do refrets uh i don't use the accelerant spray basically what i do um is i i use the gel super glue I overbend my frets. I, I over radius them, and I use the uh, the hammer in method. I tap them in with a fretting hammer, and um, then once I get them tapped in, I'm 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 checking to make sure that they're level as I go. And uh, what I do is I take a radius block, and I I clamp all the work behind me. So. I'll do three frets, like start at the nut, do the first three frets, and then clamp um, with a radius block those three frets. And so it's clamped to my bench, so the neck is is real solid, clamped down, and the frets are being clamped by that radius block. So the the glue is gonna harden while it's being clamped. That's how I do it. Um, I just I try not to use that accelerant spray if I don't have to because I feel like it's I feel like it's cancer in a can. <laughs> I really do. It's it smells awful, and I can just ugh, ugh, just thinking about it. I hate the way it smells, and I I just know it's super super bad for you. It's going to give you emphysema and cancer and whatever else. And as a guitar repair guy, I know I'm living in a toxic cloud of of glue fumes and paint fumes and solder fumes and and uh, uh, wood dust. It's not a good, it's not a good scene. I use uh, masks and respirators as much as possible, and I try to stay away from nasty chemicals as much as possible. Um, so that's the way I do it, Mitch. I, you know, I, uh, there's, there's, 
There's a ton of different ways to do refrets, though, or, or to fret a neck. Um, I know a lot of guys prefer to use the clamp method, like the, well, what's it called? The fret vise, where it just pushes the fret in. Uh, I've tried those. I didn't like them. I'm old school. I, I prefer the, the hammer-in method. That's what I do. Um, anyway, yeah, super glue. I use it every day. Man, I mean, really, if you think about, like, uh, I, I think about wh- what could I... What could I not live without? And I think superglue is, is maybe the top of the list. I use superglue for everything, and I think most repair guys do. Um, I, I, it, it hasn't been around for that long, and I can't imagine living without it. I use it for finish repairs. I use it to, to glue parts together. I use, it to, I use it for fret jobs. Man, I use it for everything. I use it even, to, I use it even as a bandage to, to heal cuts on my hands. <laughs> Which is actually what it was invented for, if I, uh, if I remember right. It was invented uh, during World War II as a, uh, a liquid instant bandage on the battlefield. So, there you go. Anyway, thanks for the question, Mitch. And uh, let's do this. Let's, take, let's do some calls. So, these calls um, that I play on the show where I'm talking to a caller, are obviously not live, because this show's not live. They're pre-recorded. I get a ton of calls um, in my shop, and it's always kind of a... Uh, uh, it's a little bit of a bittersweet thing, because I like to help people, but it's also... Um, sometimes it's it turns into an immense waste of time <laughs> if I get a lot of people calling me in a day and I can't get anything done. I can't charge for questions people are asking over the phone, so... Um, that was one of my initial ideas for uh, the reason to do this podcast was that I could record those calls and at least use them for something. So anyway, these are actual calls I get in my repair shop, um, tech questions, and I'll, I'll record a couple of them for for each episode. And uh, of course, I get the caller's permission, and then I edit that out so you don't have to listen to it. But Yes, the callers know they're being recorded. I get their permission. I have to. It's law. So um, they know that I I get their permission and they know that I recorded the call. So uh, anyway, here we go. Let's go to the phones. Eric, Zach. Hi, Zach. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? Good, good. Good. Hey, I have have a uh, Frankenstrat question. Okay. Got a Frankenstrat, and I got it all set up. I, I got the, but I got the uh, the bridge like all the way down, and the bridge saddles all the way down, and it's set. I got nowhere, no downward travel left in the bridge saddles, hmm. and I want to float the tremolo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I got to move the neck up. So the the saddles are all the way down. Well, I've got, I've, I've got the radius correct. Uh-huh. You know, it's 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 radius, but the, there's nowhere for me to go up with the bridge to float it. So the action's the action's still too high with the saddles all the way down. No, the action's perfect right now. If I have the action, the action in the setup is good. It's just that I have the uh, the bridge all the way down. It's like flush against the body, like as if it were a hardtail. Oh, okay. Uh, and is it the the kind of tremolo that has the two posts, or is it a vintage style with the, the six screws? Vintage style with the six. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, have you tried floating it? I mean, it, or is this just in theory you think it's not going to work? Well, I, if I raise the bridge, I've got nowhere, then I'm going to raise the action, and, I, and I've got nowhere to go down on the saddle. Yeah, just so tilting the tremolo just a hair um, shouldn't shouldn't raise the action too terribly much, but uh, it might it might raise it enough that you'll um, yeah you'll you'll just need to shim the neck um, and then you can redial it in uh, to compensate. Yeah. So I don't need that thing floating flush. It can float like the rear end can float up at an angle. Yeah, this is a vintage style tremolo, right? Yes, sir. So the the front edge part yes. or the part with the screws yes. um is going to stay put. You 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 never 
uh, raise and lower a, a vintage style tremolo with those screws. Um, oh, okay. In order to get some play, some backwards play, mm-hmm. what you do is loosen the 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 springs in the back so that that okay. that tremolo is sitting um, just at a slight angle. Okay. Yeah. And do you have a measurement or a spec or something that you do? Yeah, an eighth of an inch, you know, if you want to get uh, specific, um, eighth of an inch is what you want to see there. I, if, I, I normally just eyeball it. I mean, you know, you, you kind of know after doing a million of them kind of where they should be and, and um, you want them to go, you know, up about a whole step at least. So eighth of an inch, I think, is what the spec is. Because, yeah, the, the Fender spec is really vague if you look on the website. It's oh, like yeah. you could look up the, the uh, setup specs, and it's very big. So, so what the six screws across the front, I want those all the way, I want that puppy screwed down. No, um, they need to be uh, backed off enough so that the, so that the bridge can, can fulcrum there. It needs to be um, just so that the, the heads of the screws just barely um, rest on the top of the bridge plate when the bridge is is resting flush on the body. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I set up a two-point floating tremolo the yeah. other day. The two, the, and those and are totally different. Thing, yes. And I read the instructions. I found something online. And I, I got that thing to play beautifully. Yeah. But... And yeah. float, but this one, I've, I've not done the vintage. Yeah, and to float those, to float the new ones, you want them parallel to the body, just up right. above the body a little bit. To float the vintage-style mm-hmm. ones, you want them to s- sit at just a slight angle. Okay. If you look at um, the the original blueprint, Leo Fender's original blueprint on the Strat, um, that's how those are set up. Uh, that tremolo system is supposed to float just about an eighth of an inch off of the body, uh, from the very back edge, and they're just sitting at an angle like that. Different from the modern one. The modern one sits parallel to the top, so uh, that's the difference. Perfect. That makes perfect sense. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me. Yeah, no problem. All right. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for the call, Zach. You know, it's a it's a common misconception. I, I set up a lot of Fender Strats, and, uh, you know, it a lot of players don't realize that uh and and it took it took a minute there for for Zach and I to get on the same page but I think we figured it out um it's a common misconception people don't understand or people don't a lot of people don't realize that um the original strat tremolo is actually designed to float it just sits at an angle and uh that's so that you can go up or down with the arm you can both raise and lower the pitch um that's not to say that that's that's the only way to set them up. There's more than there's more than one way to fry a fish here. You can uh, and most players actually, it seems like, um, prefer them uh, so that they're set up flush with the body. So you tighten up the the claw in the back, the 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 tension adjustment for the tremolo springs in the back there. You tighten that up until the tremolo is just resting on the body and uh, then it's flush with the body. That way, now you can only go down with the arm, you can only lower the pitch with the arm, but um, it's a little bit more stable uh, tuning-wise. Um, so either either way is a perfectly legitimate way to, to set up a Strat. Uh, and, of course, then the third way is to tighten the springs way up so that the uh, tremolo really doesn't move at all and you just don't even use the arm. It's it's essentially uh, becomes a hard tail at that point. And you can even put a block of wood in, in the back there um, to keep the tremolo from moving. And that's what people talk about when they talk about blocking a trim. But uh, yeah, that's um, the kind of the three options on, on uh, how to set up a Strat tremolo. And uh, it pretty similar on the modern version as well. Uh, those are designed to float, except the way that they float is that they are just, they're parallel to the body, but they're just up above the body a little bit, and um, you can uh, take those two posts, those two adjustment posts, and adjust the whole tremolo unit down so that it's resting flush with the body, uh, and then raise the saddles up a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes there's a neck uh, pitch adjustment you have to do and I don't, there's there's my point is 
there's more than one way to set up a strat, and uh, I always like to um, get a real good idea of uh, what the player likes when when uh, when they drop off their strat to me, because I don't want to float the tram if you uh, if you prefer it to be a hardtail style setup. So that's the story. Thanks for the call, Zach. Okay, well, we'll take a quick break and be back with more after this. Proprietor, as he likes to say, the uh, the sole proprietor. That's S O U L proprietor of Emerald City Guitars here in Seattle, Washington, the lovely shop where I happen to work. And uh, Jay, when did you when did you start this store? Uh, well, howdy, guys. Um, I opened this shop in the spring of 1996. Uh, so almost 20 years now. Yeah, in fact, it'll be 18 years in May. Wow! So yeah, we've we've been down here for a while, and, and we've seen a lot. And Eric, you've been here almost 12 years. So. 12 or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, 12 years. Yeah, I think it's over 12 years now, going on 13. Cool. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah it's been great. Um, I had a question earlier uh, in the podcast about the vintage guitar market, and um, you know, I I found it difficult to answer because uh, it. It was basically asking me what the vintage guitar market is going to do, and that's really uh, almost impossible to answer because uh, the vintage guitar market took a dive in, what, 2008? Yeah. And it was kind of tied in with everything else, with the housing market and everything, right? And uh, it's unless you're some kind of financial wizard, it's hard to see those kind of things coming. So it's it's hard to say what the market's going to do in the future, but where has the market been? I mean, it's it's... It's climbed pretty steadily, hasn't it, over the last several decades? Yeah. In fact, when I got into music retail around 35 years ago, I was primarily working in shops that dealt in in new instruments. And vintage gear, certainly at the level it is now, it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. Uh, People were trading in old jazz masters and, and tellies for new Kramers and yeah you know things like that and new Les Pauls and so forth so at that time we didn't put a lot of stock in some of this, the cool stuff now that is like really held in high esteem as time went on we saw a little bit of that start to change um, you know you see Fender started introducing their vintage reissues yeah you know, in the early 80s so. yeah replicas of the 50s yeah. guitars so at that point I, I kind of went well there, there's got to be something to this and then there was always uh, a certain type of guy that would come in that was really into the old stuff that recognized you know how cool it was so you know as time went on I I, I started kind of getting a, a little thought that hey this thing's going to keep rolling and then it really kind of took off uh around that time for really strong for about 10 years yeah Uh, that's when you start seeing the vintage guitar shows come on vintage guitar magazine and things like that so people were really starting to get tuned into the the cool guitars yeah um and who could have foreseen things like a uh uh, a late '50s Les Paul standard being worth a quarter million, maybe three hundred thousand dollars. If it's a if it's a clean example, maybe even more. Yeah. You know, uh, those were always kind of sought after guitars because of the people that made that guitar famous, and they're, they uh, they weren't very popular when they were introduced. So um, they became kind of well known later. But uh, and so they they started uh, climbing in price. But um, man, it just seems like they absolutely really took a skyrocket about uh 20 years ago and they just they they i feel like that those that's a, a guitar in that caliber is never gonna is never gonna nosedive i mean that's a guitar that because of rarity because of demand it's always gonna be um a really high priced guitar 
right? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, guitars like that, where there's a, a really limited amount manufactured, I think between 58 and 60, it's somewhere a little over 1,600 bursts. That's yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the Sunburst Les Paul Standard were manufactured. And, and out of that, there's maybe, what, half that are still around intact yeah. in original condition, if that. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting. And when I opened this shop, the, the the vintage market had really like risen really high and everybody kind of thought ah this thing's going to die off in fact there were a few folks that thought I was kind of like crazy for opening a vintage yeah. guitar store because ah it's done it's over it played its course you know and man I got to tell you it, it, it from that time it just even like took off even more yeah. up until around 2007 the, the from about 2005 to 2007 I call it the bubble man things were I mean, that's when I thought the bursts were going to maybe hit a million dollars. Yeah. Like a 54 Strat would certainly be worth a half a million, uh, you know. And, I mean, things were just going nuts. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, you know, all of a sudden, when we had the recession, everything changed for yeah. a few years. And, right. Um, so that was really interesting to watch. And so, you know, over the course of maybe the next three or four years, you saw a lot of prices in the blue books start to, to plummet. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of guitars came out of the woodworks mm-hmm. too, because people were just kind of unloading them because the economy, certainly that was part of it. Yeah. Um, have prices come back up to where they were almost before the recession? You know, on, on some things they have, uh, on others. No, and yeah. it's, it's definitely changed. It's, it's changed, um, not only in terms of the pricing, but what the buyer's looking for. So the guys that were, that continued to buy vintage guitars over, uh, over that, the recession years, you know, um, guys were still buying expensive guitars and they were paying fair money for them yeah. too. In fact, I, I, I was one of those guys that held the line on some of these really like hard to find great guitars because I felt they were worth it. You know? Oh yeah. So those guys were buying guitars, but the, the deal was they were, they were buying the best. So they were, they're finding the best guitar and they were still willing to pay the money for it. Right. Whereas before a guy just wanted a 59 Strat and he, he wasn't looking too hard at, you know, little things like a changed potentiometer or a yeah. refret or a, you know. Yeah. But uh, premium guitars are always going to command premium prices. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, I've heard speculation and I don't remember where I heard it or if I, re- if I read it somewhere. Um, there's been speculation that um, part of what's driven the vintage guitar market has been the baby boomers. And as the baby boomers disappear or retire or start to liquidate their collections for retirement or whatever, there's been some speculation that that might be a potential bubble or a bump in the road that, uh, that, um, we could see prices fall yet again. I don't really subscribe to that theory, but I, uh, it's possible. But I, I wanted to get your take on it. What do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I've, you know, I've run into guys asking the same question. And you know, certainly the baby boomers. You know, we're I'm one. You know, we were raised on rock and roll and the Beatles. And you know, you're you're a kid and you you want a guitar. Yeah, and for know? that generation, the vintage guitar market is a nostalgic thing. Yeah. And for the younger generation, the vintage guitar market is really more of a um, a, a romance and a, a quest for quality and tone rather than a nostalgic thing. Yeah, it's not something great. they remember from yeah. their youth. But yeah. um, I I feel like we you know I see enough guys. Uh, younger guys uh, buying vintage gear that um, I think that there's going to be plenty of uh, buyers in the future. I agree with you, man. I mean, there there are a lot of guitar enthusiasts. And right. There always will be. I know, man. And, and, you know, for a shop like ours, you know, not to kind of toot our own horn, but we've been here a long time. We deal in great instruments. You know, th- there are far more buyers than we'll probably ever be able to fill the needs of. You know, yeah. that, that's not saying we have an empty store, but I mean, we get, you know, 30, 40, 50 emails from guys around the world every day yeah. asking questions about vintage guitars. And some of these guys are like 30 year old guys in Italy or, yeah. or looking you know, for a specific year old guy in China. Yeah. You know, they're not baby boomers. And right. these guys are really excited about vintage guitars. Yeah. And I just, I don't see that changing. I don't, I don't either. And it's, it, 
it's a global market too. Yeah, I mean, really I, I see you guys ship guitars all over the world every day. It's it's uh, truly a global market. And then you've got global currency differences drive the market, and it's it's a really interesting dynamic to watch. Yeah, I mean, it, it still blows my mind kind of when you you're, you're emailing a guy in France and maybe a phone call maybe not and the guy will buy a thirty thousand dollar guitar without even putting his hands on it yeah and trust you to ship it yeah. to him and you know yeah i mean that's no small purchase yeah but, uh i mean that's that's the kind of enthusiastic guitar buyers there are and, and yeah. there's there's plenty of them because we're not the only shop in you know in the country and certainly not in the world so. yeah um i think that there are guitars out there vintage guitars that haven't quite yet seen their day and haven't really seen their potential for value. Um, I wondered what, what you think about that. Are, are there sleeper guitars out there, sleeper vintage guitars that are a bargain now that might go up in value? Yeah, I believe there are. And that's something we're always trying to uh, speculate on and try to figure that one out. I remember this was around be, before kind of the, the little dip we took in 2008 when, you know, a lot of guys were investors were buying guitars because it was just it was a great it's great yeah. investment and, and still is and so you had these these guys trying to speculate on what the next big thing was so you know go back to when i opened the doors in 1996 say you could buy a 62 strat for five thousand dollars and then fast forward to 2007 you might pay fifteen thousand dollars for that gu guitar yeah. a decade later right so you get these guys in and they're looking at Oh, well, maybe 70 strats are the next deal. And, and, yeah. and it's proven to be true. I mean, a 72, 72 strat, for instance, those those guys will go for as high as four or $5,000 now. And, yeah. you know, 10 years ago, they were $1,500. Yeah, so, right. And that's just one kind of uh, example, you know. Another guitar that I feel like uh, is undervalued are the vintage Dan Electros. Fifties, early sixties, Dan Electros. You can still pick them up for under a grand, which yeah. is amazing to me. I, they're not quite to the quality of, of Fender or Gibson, but um, they're American-made. They have a unique sound. They are um, uh, made uh, to a pretty high standard of quality, and uh, they they're super affordable. I, I feel like at some point those uh, that might be a guitar that that uh, will will go up in value. What do you think? Yeah, Danos are cool, and and along with everything else you you said about them, you you can see guys like you know Jimmy Page, you know used them, and, and some of the guys you know over the years, some of these icons, um, and, and that kind of goes along with what I call the whole second tier of you know American guitars, which yeah. are the K's and the the Danos, harmony. The, you know, we just sold a magnetone guitar today that was really cool. Uh, you know, there's 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 a whole airline silver tones you know and the list kind of goes on and on and those are really cool guitars and they're still pretty affordable yeah and and, and they have definitely risen you know in the last decade certainly and uh these are guitars you know i remember you know back in the 90s that we could go to a guitar show and buy it for 100 200 bucks yeah and now you know they might fetch fifteen hundred dollars yeah if you find a really unique one or a rare color yeah 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 and the whole trick of those guitars uh is it has to be playable so a lot of them you'll see the next wonky because people just didn't take care of them like they yeah. would their gibson or their fender so a lot of them were kind of you know mishandled or, or just left leaning against the garage wall or something right. you know but if you find the good ones are they're, they're great guitars that's what i like about the dan electros is they've got a unique neck where there are it's not an adjustable truss rod, but they have two steel I-beams running down the neck. You rarely see a Dan Electro with a warped neck. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Jay, I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast here. I wanted to get a professional's <laughs> take on uh, vintage guitars and the vintage guitar market. And you're the guy. I can't think of anybody else that I'd rather uh, talk to about the subject. So yeah. thanks well, for joining me. Yeah, it's fun stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Thank right. you. Yeah. Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank... MV over at ufoship.com for hosting this podcast. I want to thank Jay at Emerald City Guitars here for joining me uh, and for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks to Red with the news and uh, everybody that participated. Thank you very much. And I'd love it if you would participate. I can't do this show if you don't send in your questions. So visit me at fretfiles.com and I'll see you next month. Thank you.